This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, This week, uh, we have uh, with us uh, one of the foremost experts on American democracy, communication, uh, and in particular, uh, the post office. And the post office has played a crucial role in the development of American democracy, and it's likely to continue to play a crucial role in our democracy today. And we will discuss those issues with our guest. Richard John is a historian who specializes in the history of business, technology, communications, and American political development. He teaches and advises graduate students in Columbia's PhD program in communications, and he's a member of the core faculty of the Columbia History Department, teaching courses on the history of capitalism, as well as the history of communications and various other topics. Richard has written a number of important articles and books uh, that have been very influential for me and many other historians. Uh, My two favorite works of his are two of his books. Uh, The first, Spreading the News. The American Postal System, From Franklin to Morse, which was published in 1995, and more recently, a wonderful book, Network Nation, Inventing American Telecommunications, published in 2010. Uh, Richard, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Before we turn to our discussion of the post office uh, and American democracy with Richard, uh, we have, of course, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. What is the title of your poem today, Zachary? Delivering Freedom, Save the Post Office. Well, that's a provocative title. Let's hear it. There are no cheeky businessmen to send the veterans medicine across the country to his bungalow in Iowa. No entrepreneur in their right mind to bring welfare checks safely into the hands of broke Louisiana shrimp fishermen. No one to send messages of comfort to scared boys in prison cells. No corporations to bring me postcards from my grandmother or to send my thank you notes to Seattle and Concord and West Orange. No one to protect the freedom of the press for profit or bring internet to the Mississippi Delta. We are letting you drift, stalwart postal workers in the steaming white trucks. We are letting you drift into the abyss of profit, drive for prices, political attacks, and no one seems to care. You, mailman who always waves to me with a smile, you are the ancestor of the very essence of federalism, the bleak frontier outposts of civilian government. Democracy isn't just an ideal, it is a practice, a logistical endeavor of its own, and it has flown airmail across oceans or settles in giant mail bands that drive through endless towns to promote financial literacy, to find an outlet for every voice, to bring me my favorite car magazine, political commentary, and the census forms. We are fascinated with logistics, enterprising Americans reliant on the electrical webs that endlessly operate within giant computer servers, the logistical undertakings of vast ships carrying millions of boxes of toilet paper across the world. But what about the superhighways of democracy, the arteries and veins of Republican idealism? When did we forget about the infrastructure of freedom and begin to let it rot in monetary concerns or shake it in earthquakes of reasonless ignorance? What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about the place that the post office holds um, in American history and in American society and the vital public public good that it does every single day and how important it is to our democracy. Beautifully said, Zachary. Uh, Richard, why has the post office been so central to American thinking going all the way back to the founders? It's even in the Constitution. Why? Well, boy, Zachary put it very well. 
Um, and here's a, a, a short answer. Post office was in the Constitution because the founders took it for granted that we needed basic infrastructure, communication channels, to circulate information on commerce and public affairs. Now, the understanding of public affairs when the Constitution was drafted in 1787 was much narrower than the conception of public affairs that would emerge by 1792. And I underscore this because if you read editorials today about the post office, it's often said to have been established by Benjamin Franklin in 1775 and more or less often running from that point. But in fact, Franklin's conception of the post office was not that different from the conception that was held by British government administrators, circulate information on commerce, public affairs, mostly for an elite. Franklin experimented with newspaper delivery in the mail, but there was absolutely no legal provision for the circulation of newspapers through the post office, which was the primary channel for the circulation of information at the time of the founding. There was no provision for that, 1787, 1788. All that would change in 1792. And a key figure in that new thinking was James Madison himself. Interesting. When James Madison wrote his Federalist essays, 1787, 1788, known to many uh, Americans, college students. Uh, those Federalist essays, he envisioned lawmakers returning home to their constituents to talk about affairs of state. In other words, it'd be a, a kind of a, a meeting of the minds face-to-face. -face. He did hmm. not envision the circulation of newspapers on a continent-wide scale. In fact, he does not use the phrase public opinion in the Federalist. All that would change by 1791-1792. Madison's now in the opposition, Thomas Jefferson, and they recognize the enormous importance of creating new channels, not just for the government to get its message across, but for the citizenry to communicate with the government. And that led to a remarkable expansion in the mandate of the post office, completely in keeping with its original purpose, which is to circulate information on public affairs and commerce. But now it's expanded to include the primary medium for the circulation of political information. And that medium was the newspaper. So from 1792 on well into the 20th century, the federal government massively subsidized the circulation of newspapers sent through the mail. Now, what does that subsidy mean? Well, here's an example. You sent a letter from Philadelphia to, say, uh, Georgia. It could cost you as much as 50 cents if it had an enclosure, two sheets. Newspaper you could send for a penny and a half even though the wow. newspaper was much bigger. It's a huge subsidy. And within a couple of years, newspapers made up as much as 95% of the weight of the mail. So the, hmm. the post office was not really a letter delivery infrastructure. If you think about weight, 
bulk. It was a newspaper delivery infrastructure, and the newspapers were full of information about public affairs. Now, the letters generated the bulk of the revenue. The merchants paid for everybody's newspapers. But it wouldn't have made that much of a difference had not lawmakers, Congress, the Second Congress, insisted upon keeping control over the expansion of the network. That is to say, before 1792, in keeping with British precedent, that remained British precedent, the postmaster general would decide when a new route would be extended. And, and he'd be concerned about financial considerations. Would it pay? Because he was evaluated on his ability to more or less balance the books. All of, and in Great Britain, Benjamin Franklin's post office was a revenue generator. Hmm. In fact, hmm. Alexander Hamilton thought the U.S. post office might be a revenue generator too. But in 1792, he loses the debate because Congress wrests control over the establishment of new routes from the postmaster general. You can imagine what happened. If you were living in a settlement far from Atlantic seaboard, far from the post road, which was the spine of the network, that is to say it was a single route that extended from Maine to Georgia, the old post road. If you lived far from that, spine, you wanted access to information, well, you would petition lawmakers, you'd get your friends to sign the petition, would go to Philadelphia, and then after 1800, would go to Washington, we'd like a post route, it's going to help commerce, we want to learn what's going on in the nation's capital, and Congress then would grant that request. So you have very low-cost circulation of newspapers, plus a network that is spatially extensive, much more extensive spatially than the comparable networks in Britain or France, let alone Russia or other spatially extensive countries. There was a third provision of the 1792 Act that's kind of interesting um, that perhaps might even have some special relevance today. Sure. Many of the lawmakers who served in Congress were familiar with the opening of letters in Britain and on the continent by government postal administrations. It was common to, in effect, spy on your own subjects. Post Office Act of 1792 includes a provision that's illegal to open anyone's letter. So to this day, posted letters are among the most secure means of communication. So those are the three key provisions of the 1792 Act. There was no ringing preamble. Its significance has only become evident to us really in the last, last century. No ringing preamble, but you have a provision for the circulation of information on public affairs at very low cost, massive subsidies for newspapers. You have a provision for the extension of the network in advance of demand. Because of course, those little rural hamlets wouldn't all be able to pay their own way, but that was right. never a consideration. And you have what we would come by the 1840s to refer to as privacy. The term privacy was not current, but the first references to the 
circulation of letters in the post office as a as a right to privacy would emerge by the mid 19th century. So that's a pretty stunning achievement of the founders, which created an institution that by the 1830s would become a wellspring of democracy, post office jobs made up about 90% of all federal government jobs. They were jobs that were eagerly sought after by uh, politically active men and women who were involved in the electoral process. If your party won, you might be rewarded with a postmastership. Contracts for delivering the mail were important. They were given out to supporters of the party, and there was controversies about that. This was the first great pork barrel project, and democracy has a material foundation. Material foundation is not only the circulation of information, which is absolutely essential for democracy, but it was also, in effect, funding of elections. We had publicly financed elections through the patronage of the post office. So that's a pretty remarkable record for an organization that today uh, is under threat. It's extraordinary, Richard, and you and you went through that so well, and and really uh, and, and evaluated three of the key pillars that come up time and again in our discussions of democracy: access to information, the extension of that information across boundaries that are economic as well as geographic, and then of course privacy and protection of one's uh, individual opinions. Would you argue that the flowering of democracy that we usually look to around the Jacksonian period, what Alexis de Tocqueville witnessed when he came to the United States, that that was made possible because of the Postal Service? The material foundations of the mass parties lie in post office. Alexis de Tocqueville himself, when he came to America, was astonished at the circulation of political information, mostly in the form of newspapers in the hinterland. Tocqueville famously wrote, he predicted, that when he traveled from the seaboard to Michigan, he thought he would be recapitulating the history of civilization in reverse. That is to say, well, mm-hmm. be pretty civilized there on the seaboard. And then when you get out to Western Pennsylvania, well, a little more primitive. And you get out to Michigan, you're going to be at the very uh, at the very beginnings. He had he had conventional ideas about Native Americans that they were less civilized and so on. Uh, but what he discovered was. When he made it out to Michigan, they were every bit as civilized as the New Yorkers. And what does that mean? Well, you went into a hut of a settler, and there you would find his Bible, his axe, and his newspaper. And the newspaper came in the mail, and Tocqueville was aware of that. He actually has statistics. Um, There's a little counting up exercise of the numbers of Newspapers that circulate in the United States versus Lille in France, in, a, in a, say, an American city outside of the uh, very centers of power. And there's much more circulation of information in the United States than in France. So if we associate democracy, as I believe we should, access to information with the ability of ordinary people to speak truth to power, to engage in public life, not simply to receive missives coming from the seat of power, then the post office was absolutely fundamental in the period that we associate with the flowering of democracy, Jacksonian America. Now, what's interesting, Richard, about this is those newspapers that I think you're rightly pointing to as the central sources of information and mobilization, uh, they were, of course, partisan, right? And filled with what we would today call fake news. Isn't that true? Yes. The, the, what, the, this is a very good question. What was in the newspapers 
was not what to, in the mid 20th century we would call quote unquote objective news. The editors of newspapers for the most part had a political identity. Some were more partisan than others. They were all supportive of the of the government project of of the American Republic, right? Now, how would they get the material in their newspapers? Well, they would clip from other newspapers. They really had a paste pot and scissors. Another <laughs> provision of the 1792 Act is an unlimited number of newspapers could go free of charge in the press, right? Most of the information in these newspapers, which, by the way, were just four pages long, was clipped from other papers, and it was selective. But there are two caveats that are important and are neglected by journalism historians. First, the most respected newspaper in the early republic was Niles Weekly Register, published out of Baltimore. And I asked my uh, students at the Columbia Journalism School, what was the most important word in that title? Niles Weekly Register. Well, some say, well, it was a register because, it, in fact, it consisted primarily of government documents and speeches that he just uh, kind of printed verbatim. Well, that's part of it. Well, it was weekly. Well, it was periodical. Well, that is important, too. But the most important element of Niles Weekly Register is that Hezekiah Niles was trusted. He was trusted right. as an arbiter. He was situated in Baltimore, which is between the north and the south. It's a slave state, but it's a commercial city and it's familiar, you know, very close to what's going on in Philadelphia and New York, much more so they say than Richmond. And he had a sense of what we would today call the Overton window. <laughs> that is to say, what are what are the permissible boundaries of dissent on public issues? And he would report uh, or really just clip, but therefore report on radical movements from different parts of the country, reactionary movements from parts of the country, and would all get into Niles Register. So that help, helps to make Niles Register such a valuable source for historians. So there was a concept of information that was reliable. I'm not using the word objective. Uh, that's a 20th century norm. But, the, but Jeremy, the other caveat here, we've got Niles. The other caveat here is that the commercial press which is much more important than it's often recognized, had a, uh, the editors of the commercial press uh, had a vested interest in making sure the commercial information was reliable. So, so there was a tendency to challenge rumors and fake news, which existed in abundance. The, the single most pervasive category of fake news was news meant to tip uh, financial transactions, right. floating a rumor in order to uh, make a gain commercially, insider trading. And the commercial press was, uh, the editors of the commercial press were very sensitive to that because their market, which is largely subscription-based, their market was, uh, you know, knowledgeable merchants who didn't want to be duped. Right, right. So in a sense, the market worked to provide trusted sources people knew to look to if they wish to. Why, why didn't the telegram just replace this, yeah. the, tele the telegraph? What a good question. Samuel Morse, who uh, had the patents for the uh, telegraph, he, he was a, 
lucky fellow. He was the roommate of the patent commissioner, and he'd fallen in love with the patent commissioner's daughter, who gives him a very broad patent, in part to keep the Brits out. That's nice work if you can get it. So Samuel Morris has a very broad patent, and he decides that he's going to license it, kind of in a franchise model, to promoters. In New York City, the promoter who gets the uh, franchise is a fellow by the name of Samuel Colt. There may be a few of your listeners who are familiar with the Colt six-shooter. Sure. With the gun. Well, Colt, it turns out, not only made guns, but he was also very good at explosives. And he early came to attention because he would be able to blow up a ship in a harbor by attaching to it what was called a torpedo, which was not something that runs through the water, but instead was a bomb that was just connected to the ship. Now, the question is, <laughs> how is that torpedo going to be charged? And the answer is you'd have a wire underwater. So this is a long way of saying that he was very good at underwater insulation. So Morse taps Colt for the first electric telegraph in New York City. And you need underwater communication in New York City because it's an island and you've got water on, on, on both sides. So Colt sends out this broadside where he says the newspapers are doomed because we're going to set up a telegraph network from New York to New Orleans that's going to make it possible to underbid the New York City press. That is to say, we'll be able to get the information to New Orleans by telegraph faster than the New York City press can, and therefore the newspaper will be a, uh, will, will be a thing of the past. New media is going to doom the newspaper. Well, what happens? Well, the newspapers fight back. New York Press forms a news brokerage, which would become the New York Associated Press. And many years later, under different management, the Associated Press of today to get control over news. They also go to the New York State Legislature to get extraordinary privileges for journalists. As a consequence, the New York Associated Press fights off the challenge of the telegraph. Perhaps the single most important kind of feather in its cap was that they guaranteed the quality of information against speculation. There was a tremendous concern with the electric telegraph that a promoter could float phony news, fake news, send it to the press. It would get out quickly and that would rile the markets. The New York Associated Press, and that it happened on multiple occasions. New York Associated Press says, we're going to guard against that. You should trust journalists rather than uh, telegraph promoters. And so at that moment, could have gone the, either way. And there were plenty of newspaper stories in the 1840s saying the newspaper press is doomed. This new technology, well, they didn't use the word technology, but this, th this new technical contrivance has emerged that's going to destroy it. The journalists fought back and they preserved the sanctity of uh, information about commerce and public affairs. And, and that required the post office then to continue to deliver the newspaper. The newspapers would continue to go through the mail. Yes, that, that's the post office angle here. But I have a, since I teach in a journalism school, there's also a the journalism angle. The, the journalists work so closely with the post office to guarantee a market. Abraham Lincoln, for example, he would have read the country edition of the New York Tribune in the 1850s, which would have come to Illinois through the post office. It's the fundamental, indispensable mechanism for the circulation of information on commerce and public affairs. When did uh, the post office 
the post office prominence in American democratic conversations begin to fall out of the public consciousness? Well, it's a long way after the 1840s. The post office is still on the rise. 1845, you have legislation that leads to low-cost letter postage. So now the government guarantees low-cost, convenient circulation of information, not only in commerce and public affairs, but also on personal matters. Immigrants, by the million, communicate via letter. Well into the 20th century, letters were the key means of long-distance communication. The telegraph never became an inexpensive long-distance medium of communication for ordinary people. So the post office is on the march in the late 19th century in the 1880s. Uh, Critics of the telegraph will say, why don't we run the Western Union like the post office? Bellamy's looking backward. Vision was the government taking over businesses and running them like the post office. There's almost a there's almost a post office triumphalism into the early 20th century. Then you have parcel post in the Wilson administration. You have postal banking. 1930s, 1940s, the heyday. There was a there was a, a movie called The Miracle on 34th Street, which perhaps some of your you, you remember the movie, Jeremy. Yeah. Um and, and and the key it's all about one of the key plot twists is does Santa Claus exist? Well, how do we know if Santa Claus exists? Well, the post office delivers mail to the North Pole. So that shows that Santa Claus has to exist because you, you, you trust the post office to get that sort of thing right. So, and, and Richard, I think it's an important point. You, you just touched on it briefly, but the fact that the post office was a trusted banker yes. during the banking crisis, yes? The, the postal banking was essential for uh, millions of immigrants. They did not trust commercial banks in Europe. Uh, it was it was hemmed in in various ways by lobbyists for for private banks, so it never gave high interest. To this day, in Japan, you have a very post office banking is thriving, and that made it. That's another kind of access, democratic access, access to credit. You see, you can't really have a democratic society if everyone in that society does not have access to credit. Post office banking did that. So to get to very good question, kind of what happened. Well, after the Second World War, postal volume is still increasing, but there is uh, there's tension with certain unions. The post office is a, one of the biggest union employers, and there is administrative challenges coming from this conflict between professional administration and political patronage. 1960s, you have a near collapse of the Chicago post office, and that leads to calls for reform. And the calls for reform culminated in the establishment of what we today call the institution, which is the United States Postal Service. That's a relatively new, uh, a, a new phrase, new term, but dates from 1970, 1971. So there were, there were challenges long before the coming of internet. Post office tried to get its its rates in order. It tried to reduce the subsidies it was giving to magazines, and that led to the uh, collapse of two magazines. Jeremy, some of your older listeners might be familiar with, Life Magazine and Look Magazine. They simply sure. couldn't pay the postal uh, charges. Uh, then under the U.S. Postal Service, after 7071, the post office is no longer a line item in the uh, in in the federal budget. In fact, the post office lost money most years between the 1850s and the 1960s, uh, and it, it, Congress just paid 
paid up whatever the post office needed to operate. It was not a public issue. It was considered to be so essential to democratic self-government that it didn't really matter that it was running a deficit. But by 1970, let's let's change the foundations of it. Let's make it nonpartisan. Congress had a lot of other places to go to <laughs> keep its uh, keep, keep the party supporters happy. All those military contracts, all those road building contracts, post office was less consequential. Let's make the post office more meritocratic. You get the 1970-71 reforms. The current crisis of the post office really goes back to 1990s, steady decline in first-class mail following commercialization of the internet. And then 2006, Congress enacts a law that obliged the post office to pay forward its uh, pension funds, a kind of extraordinary, uh, uh, bizarre uh, clause that got into that act. Without that clause, the post office would be more or less breaking even until the COVID-19 crisis. But with that clause, post office is, has, has been, in effect, borrowing money for some time. And then the question is, at some point, will it be unable to borrow money? And then you've really got a crisis. And that, that, that's where we are at this present juncture. And, and Richard, I think this history is so crucial today, not just for understanding the post office, uh, but but because it raises it raises an important question that a lot of our young listeners might not uh, recognize how essential postal delivery of letters and news and information still is in our world today. Oh, and in fact, the delivery of things beyond that. Why, why is it so important? Absolutely. Um, you know, in the 1880s and 90s, government administrators and journalists floated the idea of the post office principle. Well, what is the post office principle? Well, the post office principle was that the government had an obligation to circulate information and after the 19-teens parcels throughout the country, independent of cost. That is to say, to the smallest hamlet, Zach's poem was wonderful in this, the smallest hamlet as well as the big cities. The big cities tended to generate a lot more revenue than the small towns, and that remains the case today. So it has that obligation to blanket the country. No commercial carrier, FedEx, UPS, has anything like that in its DNA. They could go out of business into some other business tomorrow. FedEx and UPS, I just recently someone did the calculations. In, they deliver in a year what the post office delivers in 13 days, and they do not deliver it to the kind of places that the post right. office delivers right. it. We right. still have uniform postage for small parcels, letters throughout the country. That's extraordinary. That's not cost effective. If, if somehow it became commercial, you'd, you'd immediately lose that kind of access. And the idea that we're all in this together, we're all part of a common project at a basic level is predicated on the idea that we can all share information with each other. Now, some young listeners say, well, what about email I can or what about Skype I can communicate anywhere around the world you know at x cost well not everyone in the country has access to internet but even if they do have access to internet there are certain things you get in the post office that you're not going to be able to get in internet medicine right uh after I did a Washington Post op-ed I got letters from servicemen who were who tried out any number of expedients for getting the medicine one serviceman needed eight kinds of medicine a week the only reliable institution that would guarantee that he'd get his medicine 
was the post office. And what about mail-in ballots? What, what happens this fall if the COVID-19 crisis is not resolved? Only the post office has that kind of access. What about uh, notices for jury service, other kinds of civic obligations? Uh, post office provides those services, and it could provide many more if it wasn't so hemmed in by Congress. Remember, I, early on, I talked about Congress saying you have to deliver anywhere. Well, Congress has kept its finger in the pie. It's very important for democracy that it has, but it also means that the post office has not been able to go into lucrative businesses or lucrative sectors, really, that other businesses have. Because the post office fundamentally is not a business. Zach said that so well. It's never been judged on its ability to make profit. It lost money for much of its history. Early on, it was simply supposed to break even. That was all that was demanded of it. And it does sorts of things that businesses do not do, particularly in our current age, when businesses are supposed to adhere to an extremely narrow mandate to maximize return for shareholders. The post office is different from that. It's a public service. It's infrastructure. That's its DNA. Its DNA is coeval with the foundations of our experiment in democratic self-rule. And that's pretty right. extraordinary. It, it is. And, and there is a digital divide in our society, but there is not a postal divide because right. anyone can get um, mail delivered to them and anyone can buy a stamp for the same price that someone else pays, regardless of where they live. Mm -hmm. Should we think about the post office then as a utility? Is that the right way to think of that? Yeah, the the, the whole concept, what a utility is, is very interesting. It was originally a socialist idea from the 1890s that then was taken over by electric power companies and and, and gas works. It is a utility. It's infrastructure. It's it's almost like it's it's like part of our social skin as a a democracy. It's that basic and that fundamental fundamental. It, it is hard, I think, for coastal uh, elites and the people who show up on Sunday morning talk shows to quite recognize how essential post office remains in rural America, outside of the centers. And if there were no post office, remember, that other services would then become more expensive because the post office is a kind of a, uh, it acts as a kind of a watchdog in terms of pricing. So, right. so yes, um, that that's all that's exactly that's exactly right mm-hmm. so 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 richard we always like to close our uh episodes uh with with a, a forward looking uh question and and it really is about how especially our young listeners how they can be a part of of helping our democracy grow and flourish in these difficult times and and with regard to the post office what is it that young people should be doing? How should they encourage our government to continue to not only fund the post office, but, but help the post office continue to flourish? Because certainly you've argued that there's at the very least a historical correlation between uh, the post office and our democracy. How can we continue to make sure that that remains central to our society as we go forward? Well, I've received um, many emails, uh, phone calls from uh, people around the country who are reminding me that they today are petitioning their congressmen to make sure their post office stays open, to make sure it's open uh, on a schedule that is convenient to them. And that's a great American tradition of, of engaging directly with your lawmakers to remind them the post office matters to your everyday life. I suppose you could, <laughs> you could write more letters, but um, that's not really at the, at, at the center of the of the future of the institution, more parcel delivery, more providing medicine 
other kinds of uh, parcels, goods that are impossible to obtain in any other way. And here's just a here's just a thought. Um, ordinary Americans often claim that they love their mailman, and we had the wonderful pay into the whaleman from Zach early on, but they, they dislike that city post office clerk who would have to stand in line and mail a parcel. But you can ask yourself, why are so many people standing in line to mail parcels? It's because it's so much cheaper and convenient than any other alternative. So there is something about standing in line or at least being aware that an awful lot of Americans are willing to stand in line for a long time to mail a parcel that reminds us of how the post office binds us together. So maybe that's a thought that uh, that ordinary young people could carry forward. We also could think about the post office as a low-cost uh, broadband provider. Uh, yes. There's been a lot of proposals for the post office to get into broadband that could be secure, no advertising, no espionage, no surveillance. We could think about post office banking, which is extremely could be extremely important for underserved uh, communities. And we could think about relaxing some of the restrictions on uh, post office to engage in certain kinds of commercial activity that could help subsidize circulation of information and goods, uh, just as in the early republic, commercial correspondence subsidizes subsidized political information and, uh, and, 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 and information on personal matters and eventually, uh, eventually goods. There's just some ways to think yep. about it. I think it's very sad that we live in a society in which every institution is judged against a single metric. And, and we don't see the ways in which the post office has helped to contribute and continues to help to contribute today to bind the nation together, as as it as lawmakers said about a half century ago. And, and that's something worth cherishing, worth celebrating, and, and worth really struggling to, to uphold. Yes, I, I think that's so well said, and it is fundamentally at why a, a judgment of public service has to be at the center of our democracy, how are our institutions serving the public. Uh, Zachary, as, as a young person, um, do you think that this discussion of the post office can, can excite young people? Is this an issue that young people can focus on? I mean, when, when I was growing up, we still collected stamps, and that was a way we sort of thought about the importance of the post office. Obviously, your generation doesn't collect <laughs> stamps. Uh, so so do, you, do you agree with Richard that there's a way in which young people can see this as essential, not just to the mail, but to democracy as they think about it? I think there's a real opportunity for increased education around the issue of the postal service and about re-examining its role in our democracy. I think one of the real problems uh, that has led us to the point where we are in regards to the post office is that we've had a real lack of education to this point about what the post office does beyond just delivering mail. And I think that's something that our schools, our teachers, and our educational administrators need to work on. And I think it's something that they will work on. Well, thanks to Richard, uh, his scholarship and his public work, uh, more and more people can become knowledgeable about this. R Richard, thank you for all that you've done to elucidate uh, not just the post office, but elucidate the ways in which democracy requires means of communication and an infrastructure of connection that, that you have covered so well and the possibilities this provides going forward. I love the idea of inexpensive postal internet, postal broadband. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Richard. Well, thank you, Jeremy, and thank you, Zachary. I, I, it was a splendid poem. Thank you. Yes, Zachary, thank you for adding your poetic insights, as always. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. Mm -hmm.
This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.